History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, episode 51, Defeat from the Jaws of Victory. Once again, thank you all for your questions in the episode 50 AMA, and I hope everyone enjoyed the interview with Uzume Wijinsma. In the last couple of weeks, I also did a guest appearance on a podcast called Pilgrim's Digest, where I talked a little bit about my time in New England as a tour guide at the historic mansions in Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to go hear a little bit about my past life, you can check that out. There will be links in the description, or you can go to pilgrimsdigest.com. Now, though, it is time to resume the regular narrative. When we left off in episode 49... Xerxes and his army had completed the conquest of Athens. After defeating the Greek alliance at Thermopylae and Artemisium, the Persians marched south through Greece, accepting surrender from some cities peacefully and subjugating others by force. Once they reached Athens in southern Attica, they found the city deserted. The Greek fleet had stopped at the Athenian ports as they fled Artemisium and helped evacuate the population of the city, which was subsequently looted by the Persian army. Only a token resistance had stayed behind to defend the city's Acropolis, which was ultimately taken and burned. The Athenians had fled to the island of Salamis, just off the coast. 
Salome is a large island east of the Attic mainland and due south of the city of Megara. But the Greek fleet had sailed to the main port on the eastern side of the island, the one closest to the Athenian harbor at Phaleron. They were just about 12 miles or 20 kilometers west of Athens itself, and could probably see the smoke rising from the Acropolis when Athens fell. The fall of Athens left the Greek navy in a difficult position. The land army had retreated to Corinth after the defeat at Thermopylae. The city of Corinth dominates an isthmus less than four miles wide at its most defensible point, which separated the Peloponnese from the rest of the Greek mainland. The Corinthians had further secured their territory and the rest of the Peloponnesians by constructing walls across the isthmus, which was really the last truly defensible point to halt the Persian army. Understandably, the ships at Salome that had come from Corinth, Sparta, and other Peloponnesian cities, first reaction was to take the fleet and join their brethren at Corinth. This included Eurybiades, the Spartan captain who was nominally the overall commander of the Greek allies' naval force. However, by pulling back to the Isthmus, the fleet would expose Salome and the Athenian refugees to the Persian fleet. They would also expose the other islands of the Saronic Gulf, like Aegina, and the cities between Athens and Corinth, like Megara, to the same threat. Themistocles, the Athenian naval commander and de facto leader of the city in exile, argued that it would be a betrayal of their sworn allies to abandon Salome and the Athenians to the Persians. He further pressed the Peloponnesians to stay by arguing that they could draw the Persians into a position where they would gain the upper hand. Salome comes very close to the mainland in a few locations and the Strait of Salome near Attica was only about one kilometer wide. In the open sea off of Corinth, the more experienced Persian fleet would have room to disperse the Greeks and pick them off. But in the narrow strait at Salome, the Greeks could trap the Persians in close quarters and neutralize many of their advantages. When Eurybiades and his fellow Peloponnesians were still unsure and felt compelled to return to their countrymen on land, Themistocles played his trump card and threatened to gut the Greek navy. According to Herodotus, one Corinthian captain named Adamantos questioned Themistocles' authority to dictate strategy as the leader of a city which no longer existed. Faced with abandonment by his allies and one last chance to challenge the Persian invasion force, Themistocles threatened to take his ships and leave. He told the assembled commanders that the Athenians had received a prophecy, telling them to flee and found a colony in Italy, and that he would either load the citizens of Athens onto his 200 or so ships and sail west, or stay and fight at Salome but he would not go to Corinth. Faced with the possibility of two-thirds of the fleet sailing off into the literal sunset, the other Greek commanders had to stay and fight. But the Greeks weren't the only ones having a war council. Apparently, both sides took this as a moment to regroup and form a new plan of attack. 
The original Persian army and Greek draftees were joined by the Persian fleet at the Athenian harbor of Phaleron. Like the army, the navy had also been reinforced by new ships from subjugated Greek cities. Herodotus claims that their ranks had swelled from near parity with the Greeks at Salome, between 300 and 400 ships, back to their original strength. According to Herodotus, that was 1,200 warships, and modern estimates place it closer to 600. But he only attributes 120 ships to Thrace and the conquered Greeks. It's possible that additional ships came from Persian territory, but they are not mentioned. So we're looking at somewhere between 400 to 600 ships, depending on how you calculate, if we believe Herodotus' numbers even a little bit. Xerxes himself went to the harbor for a war council with his brother and satrap of Egypt, Achaemenes, the kings of the Phoenician city-states, the other naval commanders, and Mardonius, the overall commander of the Persian army. This war council was tasked with determining whether or not to attack the Greek ships at Salome. The Persian fleet was unlikely to attempt to circumvent Salome through completely open water if it could be avoided. Standard naval practice in the ancient world was to stay close to shore, especially if you weren't confident in good winds or clear skies. This would have been doubly true if the Persian fleet was really as storm-battered as Herodotus portrays them at this point. On top of everything, it was already September of 480, and as summer transitioned to autumn, storms only became more likely. However, they could try to sail past the Greeks and choose the place of battle somewhere west of Salome and south of Corinth. It's entirely possible that both the Greeks and Persian war councils are largely literary inventions from Herodotus. The Greeks knew they were stronger in an enclosed environment, and the Persians were unlikely to just ignore 300 enemy ships at their rear. Herodotus may be exaggerating both sides of the debate for dramatic conflict. That said, this is also one of the few times when Herodotus may actually have been privy to a real story from Xerxes' inner circle, if, perhaps, from a very biased source. Alternatively, Herodotus makes it all up for clout. You'll find historians take both positions and everything in between, but regardless of which scholars you believe, it's the only story we have, so it's the one I have to go with. It's time to meet Queen Artemisia of Halicarnassus. Artemisia was the daughter of Lygdemus I, the tyrant of the Greek city of Halicarnassus in Caria, the southwestern corner of Anatolia. Halicarnassus actually extended much of its control into the surrounding region of Greek Caria and the islands off the coast, and it seems to have remained loyal to Darius during the Ionian Revolt, given that Lygdemus's heirs continued to rule for generations. Her husband had died at some point before her father, she had no brothers, and her son was still a minor. So in 484, Artemisia rose to power in Halicarnassus and commanded her city's ships in the Persian navy. Calling her queen is probably not perfectly accurate, since the men in her family are always called tyrants rather than kings. 
but you'll see both titles used for Artemisia due to her famous role in the Greco-Persian War. That fame is due in large part to Herodotus's extremely positive description of her. He was born right around the time that Artemisia took her throne, and was a member of the Halicarnassian nobility himself. It is possible, though never stated, that Herodotus was a cousin of the Ligdamid tyrants. Eventually, pretty soon actually, I'll talk more about Herodotus' life in detail, but the important thing to know is that he would have heard Artemisia's story as a child. It is doubtful that Herodotus would ever have heard the story directly from Artemisia, as he would only have been a teenager when she died, but he almost certainly would have heard the account directly from people who knew her. Of course, that's just enough removal and association with civic pride in Halicarnassus to cast significant doubt on Herodotus's motive here. And given that he characterizes Artemisia as the voice of reason throughout her story, it's probably quite a bit embellished. But back to this Persian war council. According to Herodotus, Xerxes sent Mardonius, his primary general, cousin, and commander of the army, to each of the naval commanders in turn to get their input on how to proceed. They were all in agreement that they should attack the remnants of the Greek fleet, but probably had different ideas of tactics. When Mardonius came to Artemisia, she had a different take on the situation altogether. Perhaps this is a true story, informed by her reputation as a commander, personal boldness, and ties to the Greek world. Or perhaps she is used as a character by Herodotus to correctly predict the outcome of the battle. This wouldn't be the first time Herodotus wrote a character like that. If you go back to episode 47, Xerxes' uncle Artabanus correctly predicted the outcome of the whole war, in contrast with Mardonius's grand ambitions. The first thing Herodotus does is definitely a Greek pride thing. Herodotus has Artemisia argue that the Greeks are the stronger force by sea. This is just not true. 400 to 600 ships, largely Phoenician-built with veteran crews, were not likely to be seen as weaker than 370-ish Greek ships, almost all of which were from a city that didn't have a navy 10 years ago and were mostly crewed by sailors with exactly one naval engagement under their belts. Artemisia goes on to make some better points. First, Xerxes had Athens and all of Athenian territory, which was the target of the original expedition to Greece under Darius in 490. He could pursue the refugees, but why expend resources on people who were only as dangerous as their surviving ships? Second, just leaving the Persian navy at Phaleron could serve as a constant threat hanging over Salome and pin down the Greek fleet while the land army marched to Corinth, leaving the Greeks completely without naval support or any hope for another evacuation. Third, the Greek navy at Salome was an emergency measure. The island was not prepared to suddenly host 370 triremes or the entire population of Athens. If they just waited them out, 
the Navy would be forced to disperse and resupply at their home cities, and the Athenians could not hold out at all. Then Persia would face either no naval opposition, or 200 triremes crewed by starving Athenians. Artemisia claimed that this information in particular was being passed on by spies from the Greek camp, possibly referencing the very real tensions between Themistocles and the Peloponnesians. Fourth and finally, if a naval attack failed before the land army could take Corinth, significant losses in the fleet could cripple the army, presumably by disrupting the Persian supply lines and morale since she clearly thought the army could march west without direct naval support. She, or more likely Herodotus, paired this with a line about how none of the Persian sailors besides the Greeks and Phoenicians were worth anything anyway. Never mind that that's still like 80% of the Persian navy. Herodotus reports that Xerxes was pleased that she offered a dissenting opinion, something not everyone was brave enough to do directly to the great king, but ultimately sided with the majority of his naval commanders, who were confident that their fleet with superior experience and numbers could best the Greeks. Realistically, it probably seemed like the best tactical decision. The Greeks had a numerical disadvantage, and were clearly stalling at Salome rather than pulling back they must have seemed disorganized or disarrayed to an observer. Plus, they had the whole enemy fleet right there, ready to be overwhelmed and destroyed, clearing all naval opposition before them. The only thing the Greeks had going for them was desperation and a home field advantage. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership all 25 languages for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Of course, it takes some time to organize and prepare 500 or so ships and their crews for battle. So the first day after Xerxes gave his command was spent preparing the ships on the shore at Phaleron, and by the time they were ready to put the sea, it was too dark for a naval confrontation. You wouldn't want to ram or burn your own ships after all. The Strait of Salome was already narrow enough. Seeing the Persian battle preparations and knowing the stakes that could play out at Corinth if the Persians sent their army west, the Peloponnesians once again motioned to flee from Salome, and nothing Themistocles said could convince them to stay. Instead, at least according to Herodotus, Themistocles secretly sent an envoy back to the mainland, an envoy who claimed that Themistocles would side with the Persians. All the Imperial Navy had to do was blockade the strait and keep the Peloponnesians from retreating. The Greeks were so disorganized that they would be easy pickings in the chaos. Or at least, that's what Themistocles told the Persian command. In reality, the story told after the battle was that Themistocles was trying to force the Greeks to stay and carry out his strategy. However, many historians have theorized that Themistocles was just covering his bases. By reaching out to the Persians, he had ingratiated himself with the great king and could turn against the Peloponnesians if his plan failed, and still benefit Athens. That night, 400 Persian troops were sent to man the small island of Sitalea, which sits just south of the strait. If damaged ships or shipwrecked survivors washed ashore during the fighting, they would be met by a Persian garrison. Meanwhile, the ships were taking up positions, and it's not clear from Herodotus' description whether or not they were positioning themselves inside the narrow part of the strait, where the fighting would eventually take place, or just outside to catch any ships coming around the southeast corner of Salome. Historians have taken both positions, but ultimately the goal was the same, block Greek access to the strait. According to the later Roman author, Diodorus Siculus, they also sent a contingent of Egyptian ships around the far side of Salome to blockade the very narrow pass between the island and the coast of Megara. According to Herodotus, the western arm of the Persian battle line was composed of Greek ships curling around toward the island, while the eastern side of the line would have been right up to the mainland outside the Piraeus, the new Athenian harbor, and crewed by Phoenicians. The Greeks were still debating their plans when they heard about the Persian blockade. And then they debated whether or not that news was real until a ship from Tainos, a Greek island in the Cyclades, deserted the Persian fleet and confirmed the original report. Faced with no other options, the Greeks prepared to fight. Themistocles made a speech, as did other commanders, and then they boarded their ships. The only trireme sent from Aegina managed to slip the blockade and head back to their island, and possibly other islands, to drum up support and reinforcements. 
This would provoke a funny element in the Athenian-Aegonidian rivalry, in which they went on to argue about whether or not this lone blockade runner constituted the first Greek ship to start the battle. The Corinthian contingent deserted the Greeks, finally deciding that they would go home and the rest of the fleet would be damned because it was their home on the line. They went north, intending to sail past Megara and on to Corinth. For whatever reason, possibly the Egyptians, referenced by Diodorus, the Corinthians returned to the battle while it was still in progress, and would forever deny that they tried such a cowardly maneuver in the first place. That morning, if they hadn't positioned themselves overnight, the Persian fleet moved into the Straits of Salome. A thin peninsula called Kinosura juts off Salome toward the mainland, forming the strait, and the Persians moved in with the crescent of ships several lines deep. The Kinosura was to their south and the mainland to the north. It's at this point that some of the commanders may have started to see Themistocles and Artemisia's points. The Persian fleet took up the mouth of the strait, and the Greeks were all trying to come out of the small harbor where the peninsula meets the rest of the island. The waters were already dangerously overcrowded without any fighting. Several Greek ships came close to running aground before the fighting even started, prompting one Athenian ship to initiate a charge toward the Persian line. The battle had begun. Herodotus specifically notes that the Phoenicians were positioned opposite the Athenians, which I think is just kind of funny. They were the largest sections of their respective navies, and Herodotus specifically notes that the Athenians were not across from the Ionian Greeks. Basically, everyone would have been across from some of one group or the other, Phoenician or Athenian. However, that was the western end of the Persian line. While the eastern end was primarily filled with the Ionian ships, some of which Herodotus notes tried their best to not engage with the battle. Whether that's later stories from cities that ultimately went on to rebel against Persia, or a true is a matter of debate. But given the three stories of individual Greeks deserting the Persian navy, I'd believe Herodotus. He also notes that some Eastern Greeks fought with enough zeal to be promoted by the king after the battle anyway. Ultimately, according to Herodotus, the Persian line became disordered and unable to form their battle formations and engage with the Greeks in organized ways. The strait was too narrow for so many ships to engage according to normal naval strategy. Most of the Ionian ships were quickly sunk or disabled by the Peloponnesians on the eastern end of the battlefield. Artemisia, commanding the Carrion section of the fleet somewhere toward the center, was probably thinking, I told you so, as she was pursued by an Athenian ship trying to ram her. Either in the confusion or as a stroke of strategic genius, Artemisia's trireme rammed into another ship of the Persian fleet at full speed, plowing a huge wound into the hull and sinking it. The Athenians pursuing her took this as a sign that this was either a friendly ship and a case of misidentification, or a deserter and called off their attack. Herodotus says that he didn't know either. Meanwhile, the rest of the Persian fleet was not faring well. 
At the highest rungs, Arya Bignace, one of Xerxes' brothers or half-brothers, was commanding a section of the fleet and died in combat. This prince was one of Darius's sons from before he became king, and may be the same as the Artabanus who rebelled against Xerxes at the outset of his reign, or possibly just another one of the brothers from that set. At the bottom of the Persian hierarchy, members of their crews had been pressed into service from inland regions and river crews, and were not prepared to swim to safety in the churning seawater, and many of them went on to drown while Greeks swam away to the coast. In a confused melee of rams and oars, hulls, and projectiles, it became difficult for either side to recognize friend from foe if they didn't know the markings of the other ship. The Greeks had an advantage on that front. As a smaller fleet, almost entirely Athenian, they both had fewer markings to keep track of and more familiarity with friendly signs. The mixture of Greek, Egyptian, Phoenician, and other markings in the Persian fleet was fertile ground for friendly fire. Roughly 800 ships, 120 feet long each, were embattled in an area smaller than some neighborhoods. Some, with room to maneuver, were trying to build up speed and ram their enemies with the bronze points of their prow, but most were latching on and boarding the enemy with swords and spear in hand to create rocking wooden battlefields for the marines to fight on. In one case, a Persian ship from the island of Samothrace embedded its ram into an Athenian ship. And while still attached to the Athenians, the Samothracians were rammed by a ship from Aegina. The ship from Samothrace was lifted by the Aegonidan ram and gave the marines on board the high ground to hurl javelins down into the Aegonidans who had just hit them before boarding and capturing the Aegonidan ship. We probably should assume this is not the only instance in the battle where pro-Persian crews boarded and stole Greek ships, further leading to confusion about who was on whose side. This Aegonidan ship was apparently part of the reinforcements that the blockade runner had been sent for at the start of the battle. Herodotus never addressed their arrival specifically, but they sprung the trap that the Persians had originally intended for the Greeks. To attack the Greek navy, Persian ships had sailed north, into the Strait of Salome. But the island of Aegina was to the south, and the Aegonidan ships that arrived caught the Persians on the southern exit of the strait with open water to maneuver and ram ships fleeing back to Phaleron. Of course, the Aegonidans could only provide a few ships to begin with, but the Persian retreat was making no effort to attack them on the outside of the straits. They were just trying to run away. As a result, the Aegonidans were able to pick off as many as they could reach. As the Persian ships fled back to the harbor and the safety of the land army, the Greeks transitioned from active combat to cleanup. They towed and pushed as many shipwrecks to the shore of Salome as they could to ready the battlefield for the next Persian attack. They had successfully exploited the narrow strait, but even they didn't need additional obstacles floating in the shallows. A group of Athenian marines was taken over to the island of Sitalea, 
where they wiped out the Persian garrison that had been stationed on the island the night before, and presumably rescued any Greeks who were still alive on the island. At the end of the day, they counted just 40 ships sunk in all, bringing their full strength to around 330. Little did they know, it was possible they had the numerical superiority in that moment. Back on the mainland, Xerxes took stock of what was quickly becoming a naval disaster. Between 200 and 300 Persian ships were permanently destroyed in one battle, more than half of the whole fleet. According to Herodotus, Xerxes had observed the chaotic melee as it was happening from a hill called Mount Aigaleo, overlooking the Straits of Salome. Historians debate whether or not Xerxes himself would really have been in that position, but he would not have been too far away, and must have received updates during the course of the day. Even while the battle was still unfolding, Herodotus says different cadres of the navy had already started pointing fingers. A shipwrecked Phoenician crew begged the king to punish his Greek subjects for botching the attack. But after watching the Samothracians and Artemisia in action, Xerxes ordered that these Phoenicians and their Persian commander be executed. If the king had watched those ships succeed, he may also have just watched his brother's ship sink and be overrun by enemy marines. Everyone involved on the Persian side had good reason to be angry and frustrated. Nothing Herodotus describes really sounds like an explanation for the catastrophic Persian losses at Salome, but I think one brief reference hints at it. He portrays the Aegonidans with just 30 ships as destroying the Persian fleet in their retreat and praises them as the best men of the battle. Diodorus also emphasizes the importance of the Persian retreat by retelling the story of that Phoenician crew, executed by Xerxes, as the first crew to turn and flee rather than just one of many shipwrecks. Whether he had different information than Herodotus here is hard to say, but his point is to emphasize the failure of the Persian retreat. The Persian numbers turned against them in these close quarters as soon as any of their ships tried to turn around. And how could you blame them? A royal commander was dead, and the queen of Halicarnassus had just sank a friendly ship. Many on the front line tried to turn their ships only to face their own fleet behind them and nowhere to go, inadvertently crashing or being crashed into by their comrades. Herodotus doesn't dwell on it, preferring the more dramatic stories, but this was possibly the reason for the destruction of the Persian fleet. Too many ships were crammed into the strait at Salome, and they damaged one another trying to maneuver in opposite directions. After the first day of fighting, the Greeks were braced for a second attack that never came. Xerxes could not risk the rest of the fleet in a disastrous fight like this again. Not only was the fleet necessary to potentially support the land army, but too many losses, especially to the non-Greek parts of his fleet, could jeopardize Persian control of the eastern Mediterranean. They needed those ships to control not just the newly subjugated islands of the Cyclades, but also the Greek cities of the Anatolian coast. Worst still, the Persian army's long-term security was tied directly to an undefended pontoon bridge over the Hellespont, 
which I described back in episode 47. According to Herodotus, the Persians feared that the Greeks, or worse, Ionian rebels, might try to destroy the bridge. That would leave the massive land army stuck in Europe, trying to be ferried back to Asia if anything went wrong. So far, the land campaign had only worked because the Persian army was never in one place for too long. But getting everyone stuck in the Chersonese, or Byzantium, had the potential for a logistical disaster, or even a military one, if the Greeks pursued them. Herodotus portrays this as Xerxes' cowardly fearing for his own security, but that is doubtful. Xerxes and a small guard could probably have fled by one route or another by themselves with little trouble if there were a true disaster. The pontoon bridge was much more of a logistical concern, and of course, there were still 300 Persian ships to mount a defense if it came to that. Perhaps prompted by thoughts of this bridge, Xerxes started commandeering Phoenician merchant vessels and preparing his surviving warships for battle. The Phoenician ships were lashed together, apparently with the intention of building a wall or a bridge across the Strait of Salome and block the Greek ships in, while also being able to send the land force so that the land army could reach Salome by foot and do what the navy could not. However, the Greek navy now controlled the strait largely uncontested and disrupted any attempt to extend the pontoon bridge away from the coast. Ultimately, the Persians had to abandon that plan. Instead, they made plans to wrap up the war and consolidate their gains, probably planning in that moment to return later once a new fleet could be built up. According to Herodotus, who continues to cast Mardonius as the warmonger and Artemisia as the voice of strategic reason, Mardonius urged the king to let him march on Corinth now and to defeat the Greeks by land, rendering the whole Greek navy homeless. Artemisia told Xerxes to go home and distance himself from any possible failures in Greece. While still being able to take credit for the success, he was king after all, that's how that works. Even Herodotus thought that Xerxes must have already been planning to do just that, and it would have been the logical choice. If he left after Salome, it would still have been two years of the king of kings traveling away from home. The last time someone left the empire unattended to go conquering led to Xerxes' own father usurping the throne. Best not to risk it, even if the war was going well. However, if Herodotus' reporting is correct, and I think it is, then I do think Xerxes was a bit worried about the Persian position in early autumn of 480. He had a few of his illegitimate sons with him in Greece. He entrusted these sons and their eunuch servants to Artemisia so that she could ferry them back to Ephesus with the fleet. The Roman author Plutarch, who disliked and distrusted Herodotus' writing, may have misinterpreted this. Plutarch wrote that he did not believe Artemisia had been entrusted with the boys because the king would obviously have brought royal women or servant caretakers for that purpose. At no point does Herodotus imply that these bastard sons were children. Plutarch makes the assumption that Artemisia, the queen and commander of the Carian navy, 
was being tasked with feminine babysitting duty. Herodotus's actual writing sounds a lot more like Xerxes was sending teenage or young adult sons away from the fighting. These may have been his sons being given their first taste of military life and command. Given the date in 480 and the little bit that we know about Xerxes' legitimate sons, the boys entrusted to Artemisia may have been Xerxes' eldest sons and potentially had political roles to fill in the Persian hierarchy. Herodotus doesn't tell us much about them, and we still don't know all that much about Persian succession law, but it's possible that they could even have been seen as heirs to the throne. That might explain why Xerxes had them whisked away from the front by a trusted advisor at the first sign of danger. It shows he was taking this defeat very seriously. The night after Xerxes made his decision, the Persian navy prepared to sail, giving the Greeks the impression that they planned on fighting in the morning. The Greeks made preparations for another sea battle, but when they woke up, they found the Persian navy had sailed away overnight. And there wasn't much that warships could do against Corinth by themselves, so it stood to reason that the Persian fleet was running away. The Greeks, already set to sail, took a gamble. They sailed out of the Strait of Salome, around the south coast of Attica, and followed the Greek coastline all the way to the island of Andros, the northmost island in the Cyclades, without finding any trace of the Persians. At that point, they stopped to deliberate and choose their next move. Themistocles wanted to pursue them all the way back to the Hellespont and destroy the pontoon bridges, cutting the Persians off from the rest of their empire. Eurybiades, the Spartan commander, pointed out that this idea could backfire terribly. If they cut the Persians off, they would have no incentive to retreat to the Chersonese, when they could just pillage and retaliate in Greece itself. They went back and forth. On one hand, if the Persians were forced to stay, they could conquer Greece one city at a time and ransack it for supplies. They had the numbers. On the other hand, the Greeks had the lay of the land, and the Persian army was so large that they could potentially starve them out, or at least make conditions so miserable that they mutinied. Ultimately, Eurybiades prevailed in the debate, arguing that he did not think the Persians would remain in Greece, or even in Europe, without naval support. According to Herodotus, Themistocles handled this rhetorical defeat with grace, and told his Athenian supporters that they had won a great victory just by forcing the retreat, and they had more of a duty to go home and retake and rebuild Athens. They could exact vengeance on the Persians at a later date. Simultaneously, he also sent a single trip of trusted Athenians back to Athens, where they were ordered to tell Xerxes that Themistocles was still on his side, he had not personally wanted to destroy the Persian fleet. He had no idea that Salome would be so chaotic. Of course, Herodotus plays this as a clever ruse to entrap the Persians once again. And once again, I think this is just an example of Themistocles pragmatically hedging his bets by cozying up to the great king and keeping the double agent card in his pocket. Ultimately, this two-faced approach would not have to last much longer. 
but it would serve him well in the long run, something we'll get to much, much later in the narrative. When this Greek envoy reached Athens, they would have found the Persian army beginning to pack up and leave. They were not marching on Corinth, as the Greeks feared. Instead, Xerxes informed Mardonius that he would be leaving with the bulk of the army and return across the Hellespont. Mardonius would remain behind to consolidate Persian gains in Greece. Though he was Herodotus's warmonger character, and was now in command and could do what he wanted with his portion of the army, Mardonius did not launch an all-out attack on Corinth. Instead, he took stock of the situation and resigned himself to accompany Xerxes on the first leg of his journey north through Greece. It was already mid-autumn at this point, probably early October. Mardonius resigned himself to continue the war in the spring when the weather improved and call an end to the campaign season of 480. And with that, I think it's time to call it a day. I kept writing and writing and writing after this point, trying to include everything that happened between the end of active campaigning and Mardonius' offensive in spring 479, but it's actually quite a lot, and much of it is often overlooked when discussing this part of the war. So next time, I will cover the series of strange battles and unfortunate events between two of Persia's most infamous defeats. Until then, thank you all so much for listening. If you want more information about this podcast, you can find it at historyofpersiapodcast.com. You'll find things like the Royal Family Tree, a select bibliography, and the support page where you can find different ways to financially support this show. The best way you can do that is either through one-time payments, also on the website, or by subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. There you'll find access to things like bonus episodes and ad-free listening. You can also support the show just by getting the word out. It still is the best way to do that. Salome's a famous battle. Share this episode on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, it's History of Persia Podcast, and on Twitter, it's just at History of Persia. You can also leave reviews on your podcast platform of choice. There are so many of them now. I always love to hear your feedback. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.